0: We've generated 18,000 leads in the time we've been doing business in the property management space.
1: Welcome Closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. Season one, focused on marketing. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a hundred or a thousand doors, this is the show that's going to help you see the big picture and get to the next level.
2: I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it.
1: Today, I'm talking with Mike and Dylan O'Neill. The guys behind Geek Real Estate Marketing, a marketing agency that focuses specifically on doing lead gen within the property management industry. I've known these guys for a while now. They're, they're authors of the book, Make It Ring. Check it out on Amazon. And today we're going to talk about the overall funnel concept when it comes to sales and marketing. What is the funnel? Why does it matter? What happens inside of it? And How can you influence it? Thanks for coming on the show, guys. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us, Jordan. Well, so guys, I want to start off here for those that don't know. What do you guys do and how long have you been in the industry for? Depends
0: on where you want to count it. We've probably been doing this for somewhere between five and seven years. We've evolved over time. We started off uh, as a client services business where we manage people's ad campaigns and build websites and do all the stuff that lots of agencies do. And then we evolved the business model a couple of years ago to only doing lead generation. So we only sell leads at this point.
1: All right. So that's the basic formula. It's a pay per lead model, kind of a hybrid because you do have a lot of depth of experience in terms of doing the functions that a lot of typical marketing agencies might provide. How did you guys wind up here? Maybe here's a better question. What was the background? Like what were the precursors that led you actually to winding up working within this industry?
0: Well, our story uh, begins probably about, hmm, I'd say about 10 or 15 years ago. I've been a real estate broker now for pushing 28 years, and I had a son, and he was young and technical. I grew up in the era of of Tom Hopkins, put pumpkins on the back of a truck, go door to door, send, uh, do door hangers, and do mailers and penny savers and things like that. And I noticed early in the 2000s that those things weren't working very well anymore. And my son was spending a lot of time in the computer. And I said, so help, Mr. Wizard, like what's going on here? And so we started diving into that for my real estate brokerage business and some other investing that we were doing. And so that's how our relationship started in this process. Then as time went on, as everybody knows, things didn't go perfectly in you know 2008, 2009, 2010. And so we were back on our rear end, just like everybody else, trying to figure out what to do. And so we started doing some, uh, a variety of online marketing things during that time. One of the things that ended up happening is we basically, by luck, ended up bumping into our broker who needed some help. And so we used our basic online marketing skills to try to get him some property management leads. Now, little did we know, we'd kind of fallen backwards into cherry pie at that point. Pretty much any idiot could get a property management lead when everybody's upside down nationwide. We didn't stop and think about that at the time. We got like 100 leads in a month, and we looked like geniuses. So we thought, well, hey, maybe we got something going here. And so we kept kept working on that. We eventually spread out, and we tested like 30 different cities to try to figure out if we had something real. And that took us a few mm-hmm. years to to get through that. That was basically how it evolved over time. We basically got lucky and then we just kept adding to it over time until we got something that actually a customer wanted to pay for.
1: So tell me this, because you've had experience on both sides, real estate and property management, two sides of the same coin, but pretty different. What's your perception on the basic difference in the vibe, the culture, the personality between real estate versus property management? I'd just be interested to hear your take.
0: Well, if I was going to pick one thing, it has to do with sales. The average property management company that I've had experience with doesn't always view themselves as a sales first organization. And I don't know any real estate brokers who don't view themselves that way. So it has to kind of do with an identity. It depends on where the, the property management owner is coming from. So for example, if if the property management owner came from a different industry, like say they purchased a franchise. That's a little bit more of a normal situation where they're not as comfortable selling. They, they are looking at this as a business opportunity. They're, they've got property managers that they expect to do the selling, that sort of thing. Whereas on the brokerage side, you basically are born and bred to sell. Everybody sells. It's all about selling. It's all about closing all the time. So I would say that's the major difference that I see between the two.
1: All right. So guys, let's go ahead and dive right in and talk about the overall marketing and sales funnel. Let's start at the top. The top of the funnel is where we're trying to generate awareness. We're just trying to get people to know that we even exist. And to do this, we need eyeballs. And the best way to generate eyeballs is to do things that that are broadly interesting to the types of consumers that we're interested in working with, regardless of whether or not they're actually ready to buy now, as long as they fit the right customer profile, those are the kinds of, of eyeballs and people that we want awareness from. So when you guys think about top of the funnel, what sorts of activities do you think about and what sorts of tactics do you advise your clients towards?
0: Well, there's a couple of considerations. I'll start off with one that's near and dear to everybody's heart, and that's money. So talking about people really high in the funnel is a luxury for people that have access to uh, those people at a relatively inexpensive level because it's expensive to educate people. It's expensive to nurture people when it costs you money to get them and if they're not really ready to buy. So I think the tricky part is to be able to try to focus on people at a spot in the funnel that you can afford. You can look at and evaluate and say, okay, in a reasonable period of time, these folks are going to become a customer. Right? Here's what I mean by that. So for example, let's say you ran an AdWords campaign and you you just ran something general where you were just trying to get people top of funnel that really weren't that serious. Probably a better example might be in Facebook or, or, or a display campaign where people really aren't actually looking for property management. They are out there just kind of wandering around and you're interrupting them and telling them. Unless you do a very good job of filtering, you are going to break your budget doing things that way because those folks are very casual. They're not very interested. It doesn't mean they never would become a property management customer, but you have to have a budget and you really need to know what your lifetime value of a customer is and be prepared to go somewhat negative to to nurture those people. Further complicating that is in the property management business, it's a little different kind of of a service than some industries. So for example, if you acquire a customer in the diet and fitness industry, the person who consumes your initial free report or whatever could be a customer for life. They could continue to be interested for a long period of time, years and years and years. On the other hand, in the property management industry, when somebody is interested in property management, they probably fade in and fade out. You know, it's not like people want to know about property management for the rest of their life. They may only want to know about it for 30 days now and two years from now, 30 days, and they're really not dying to know a ton in the interim. So you have to be thoughtful about that as you approach this funnel thing because if you get too carried away, it's going to get to just be very expensive and the numbers aren't going to work for you. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that certainly does make sense. Although I would note that I think it's also expensive to not engage in any type of top of funnel activities. When you say that, you're talking about the expectations that go along with writing that check. When most small business owners write that check, they want accountable results. And more specifically, they want to know What converted? How long is it going to take? And oftentimes, they have unrealistic expectations. They want to take that same thinking and experience that relates to what it was like to generating business through referrals and have continuity when they go into paid advertising, even though it's two completely different experiences. So I'm all for accountability. I'm all for clear expectations. I'm all for clear tracking and going in with your eyes wide open. At the same time, we know there's this dichotomy. Me between the idea of renting a lead gen source, and this is this is fundamentally what pay-per-click or any form of paid advertising would be, versus owning a lead gen source. And you have these kind of mitigating factors, because on one hand, it takes much, much more time, effort, money, insight, foresight strategy to build a let's say, an organic presence, an SEO campaign, et cetera. But once you actually have it in place, it's something that you own. So where I'm going with this is this, Mike. If you were starting a property management company, and if you actually care about having a brand presence, having relationships in your community, doing the real business sorts of things that any entrepreneur should, how do you balance on the one hand, hoping to see some fruit come from those activities, while on the other hand, wanting to have near term results and accountability with any form of paid marketing?
2: I think going in with your Mm -hmm. eyes wide open and understanding the different temperature of people in different sources so like temperature of leads is like a common concept people talk about these are hot leads these are cold leads we're cold calling i think on a certain level you go in and knowing that top of funnel people let's say referral people are like very hot they are in the bottom and they are like oh i'm thinking i'm going to get something from you and soon because my friend said so and i was asking them about it Now, if they're researching, it's a lot different of a temperature thing. So if they're typing property management to Google, you know they're sort of warm because they have what we like to say is clear intent. They're actually looking for property management. So you showing them something about property management is very much what they want to learn more about. And then things like Facebook or general branding stuff, it's a lot colder. They might not even want to hear about property management, but some of those people are, and you're trying to get them – To raise their hand, and so I think part of that is you are you need to go into those things and understand where those people are going to be at at, at different spaces.
0: You have to have realistic expectations about where people are in the funnel and how hard it's going to be to convert them, and you may have to invest. So let me give you an illustration. Eugene Schwartz, very famous copywriter. You have to understand the person that comes to you has a certain amount of knowledge about the product or service that you're offering. And so this is basically how he broke it down. You've got people on one end. Let's imagine kind of a sliding scale from the left to the right. To the left, you've got people that are brand aware. They know who you are. They're just searching for your company. They've already, they already know a ton about you. Okay? Those people are relatively easy to have a conversation with. And it changes the message that you might bring to them at, at various stages and their experience with you. Next over would be people that are solution aware. They understand that there's a property management as a service. They may not, not not be familiar with a particular company, but they know that that's something that they can, they can go out and solicit somebody and get some help on. The next people over are problem aware. They don't really understand much about property management, and so this, this would be a, a large, maybe a large part of the population of the for-rent-by-owners, for example. Although some of those would fall into the next category, which is the biggest category, the most lucrative category long-term, maybe something you're talking about, Jordan, and those are the people that are unaware. So, for example, roughly 80% of the, of the non-owner residential properties in the United States are managed on a for-rent-by-owner basis, which is roughly true. So the question is, how do you get access to those people when they're not? a lot of them aren't even aware that there is such a thing as property management, which is hard to believe, but it, it, but it seems to be true. So those people are very expensive to reach, whereas people on the other end of the, the spectrum, the brand-aware folks and the, the solution-aware folks, those folks are a lot further down the funnel. So if, if you're going to attack people on the right-hand side, the for-rent-by-owners, the people that are unaware, you just have to buckle up and be ready to spend some money. Now, what you're saying is, for example, if you did a postcard mailing around the geo that you operate in, that would be maybe, for example, of a, of a, of a for rent by owner for people that are unaware, but you probably also would not be competing with anybody there, and you could nurture that long-term your relationship that you're talking about, but you just have to have your eyes wide open. We, we do have customers
2: that are doing some of this stuff, and they're seeing some success. Well, and I think it's not even necessarily that they're more expensive. I mean, sometimes that can be the case, but sometimes people are fighting over the stuff that's lower in the funnel. But the thing that is true about those things is that they take more work and more nuance to turn into customers. And so you sort of have to count the cost. You know, it's easy to move someone from, uh, as Mike was saying, like solution aware to uh, a customer. But it's a lot harder and takes a lot more time and a lot more effort. You have to have a structure and a system to handle it to move someone from unaware um, in a cost um, effective way to a customer
1: well said well I'll (laughs) stop you right there my man because I couldn't agree with you more and let's note that the folks that are participating in that category the folks that are really scaling up those top of funnel activities tend to have already have things figured out down funnel and now they're trying to get maximal leverage out of what's working down funnel by selectively moving higher 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 up in the funnel and what I mean by that is this if you start really high funnel if you start with that infographic if you start with that one-time mailer campaign you can have success you can win the battle but still lose the war right you can get somebody on the hook and interested but you have step one out of a 10-step process completed if you drop the ball on steps two through ten you've effectively wasted your money so i agree that not only the the nuance but also the the discipline and the effort to pull people all the way through that process is also a very much a part of going in eyes wide open. Nonetheless, let's get into some of these specifics about some of the activities that can be done. Top of funnel. We talked a little bit about pay-per-click SEO. I want to talk a little bit about social, which is either depending on who you talk to either the hot thing of the moment or or the whipping boy. For me it tends to be more of the whipping boy because I'm yet to work with a client that I've seen use it effectively and generate meaningful ROI. However, I know that you guys have some chops and familiarity with social. With social, you divide paid versus organic. Tell me what you guys are seeing out there with what folks are doing with social, specifically with top of funnel. If it has any hope, is it down funnel or have you seen anybody do anything useful with social on the top of funnel level?
0: I'll make one quick comment and then I'll let Dylan kind of take this over because he's done a lot of the testing. One of the things that I will say is I think people are wildly unrealistic in terms of what they think Mark Zuckerberg and others are going to do for them on the organic free side. People will be disappointed to know that let's say you have a thousand people like your Facebook profile and you make a post. Sad to report that of those thousand, maybe only 60 of those people will actually physically even see the post. What Facebook is doing, and I'm sure other platforms as well, although frankly, Facebook is the the big player here is they're basically forcing you to pay to play. And so if you think that you're going to do anything in a strictly organic method, like you probably could do effectively four or five years ago, you're probably mostly posting content and nobody is seeing it, period. It's not that they're seeing it and ignoring it. They're just never seeing it. That's the major point that I'd like to make. Dylan, why don't you jump in and talk about some of the things that you've done in terms of being able
2: to work in social? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is we've been talking about expectations, and I think there's a big jump in expectations um, on a few levels with social. One is that um, people are used to AdWords where you can very easily target somebody that's interested. It's it's not hard to figure out that I need to show up for people that are typing in property management. Well, there's no setting like that in Facebook. And so you have to get a lot more creative about how you handle targeting people. And the other thing that I would say is, this is sort of along those lines, but a little bit different, is that AdWords works much better out of the box or SEO or anything because there's a very specific question that somebody's asking and they're already trying to get an answer to it when they type in property management Seattle. It's not very hard to understand what to offer those people to get them to raise their hands into being in your funnel, uh, at least on a very basic level. Now, when you go into Facebook, you're, you're not just competing with all the other property management companies that are trying to show up for that search, you're competing with not caring and a cat video (laughs) and um, all this sorts of stuff. And so you have to test a lot more things and people don't have the patience um, or discipline to stick with things. And uh, someone we follow, his name is Perry Marshall. we've, We've talked to him about Facebook stuff. And he says that the payoff is a lot bigger on Facebook, but it takes you 10 times as long or 10 times as many trials of things to try in order to find something that, you know, strikes the mark. I think you have to go in with this expectation of you might lose some money in the beginning and you're going to have to put a lot of work in to try and figure out, okay, what's the thing um, that is going to really get people engaged in that top of funnel. And it's somewhere between buy property management services, get a free quote. And uh, here's a free cat video. You know, it's, You have to find this sweet spot of something that gets somebody to raise their hand and say, I'm kind of thinking about that. That's interesting. I didn't think about property management or even just like renting out my house or something that would get them into the funnel. But also is not too aggressive because they don't know you. They're not looking. It's just that it's not going to get their attention. That's that's the problem here. Well, one of
0: the things that I think um, would be helpful for people to get in mind is that a place like Facebook and social is not is not the kiddie pool. It seems like it is because it's free. I talked to a lot of property management owners. Oh, I should be posting more of my videos on my Facebook page. I should be writing another blog article to post on my Facebook or Twitter. And I'm just here to tell you that most of that effort, unfortunately, is wasted. Nobody's reading it. They're not getting any clients from it. Most people try to make themselves feel good and say, I'm doing brand building, maybe. But for the most part, the amount of effort that's going in there is not going to be rewarded. Another thing to keep in mind is we're talking about a long-term project, so we're really talking about faith. <laughs> You've got to have faith in this process because you're going to spend a lot of money and a lot of time, and most of it's not going to work. So yeah. that's where I'm, I'm with you, Jordan. I would say for the normal property management owner, this is a, a bridge too far and a mountain too high. Most of the effort that's put in there is not going to pay off. I'm not saying it's, it's not fertile ground and couldn't be mined. I'm just saying wow, I don't know if that'd be the first place I'd start given a a return on investment, both in time and money.
1: So you're not saying can't, you're not saying shouldn't, you're just saying most likely won't in light of... The context, the overall landscape, and and Dylan, as you stated, it is a non-commercial, non-commerce context. People do not go onto Facebook to buy things. They go there to be entertained. So it's a mismatch of context. So to get any results whatsoever, you're appealing to things that are way up funnel, very far away from commercial intent, meaning that you're at the intersection of entertainment and topical relevancy. Not brand relevancy, because talking about yourself is, is way off. The mark, but topical relevancy. So, if you can find a way to entertain people in the context of talking about something to do with real estate, investing, etc., that's kind of the angle that you're forced to. To take. You did identify the carrot. The motivation here is that if you can figure it out, you can scale it. The world is your oyster, particularly if you're a multi market. If you're B2C, if you're business to consumer, and you're selling something that can be shipped, the entire universe is now up for grabs for you. For most of our clients, they're focused on one specific market. So that's the first limitation. The second limitation is their ability and willingness to put on that mediapreneur hat. Very few have that. And to the extent that they do, they miss the mark when it comes to distribution or how to actually get value from the content. So the intent was right. The guilt trip was kind of sort of right. Because the guilt trip, if you spin it properly, is something along the lines of, I have the domain knowledge. I am the expert and I want to communicate and add value for my clients. And I'm inclined to do that in the format of Vlogging, blogging, writing an article, whatever it may be. That makes sense to me, but where things fall short is bridging the gap between actually creating that content and getting value from it. Part of that could be failure to recycle the content. Part of that could be failure to put it in the right place, period. You had a video that in one context you could have gotten value from. Maybe you created a great video and it would have given you value had you made it a part of a drip email campaign and now it it was going to be reused for the next five years to nurture leads, and that's where you were going to get the maximal ROI. But instead, it was a one-time post on Facebook. It got buried, and you no longer got value from it. So you're right; there are a lot of disciplines associated with actually getting value at scale in any of these mediums. I agree. With all of that, I want to come back to social once we talk about the paid conversation, which will be a little bit down funnel. Let's, across the board, move down to the middle section of the funnel. Some people say tofu, mofu, bofu, standing for top of funnel, middle funnel, bottom funnel. Let's move to the mofu section. Dylan, middle of the funnel, what are we trying to accomplish here in the middle of the funnel?
2: Well, so if we think of the top of the funnel as getting someone's attention, getting them to just, like, recognize that you are a thing, uh, whether that's uh, someone that gave them an article or someone that showed up in a search result, the next level is trying to get them to trust you and to like you and to, like, be interested in buying from you. Things that would fall into this category are educating people, um, your reviews, anything that moves them from I know who you are to... I'm ready to call you. Let's put it it like that. Quickly, going back to Facebook a little bit, one thing that we've seen a lot of um, good come out of with Facebook, I think it works because it kind of narrows down some of the problems that you're dealing with in Facebook, is retargeting. And retargeting, for people that don't know what retargeting is, is someone comes to your site, your landing page from a pay-per-click ad, your website from uh, from SEO, something along those lines, And they somehow get added to this invisible list that you can then show them ads for. Now, that means that you can actually show them Facebook ads, but only show Facebook ads to people that have already visited your stuff. So you know that they're interested in property management. So that's one hurdle in the social stuff that you've overcome by marketing to them. A big thing that I believe in, in terms of the whole middle funnel thing, is that you're trying to be genuinely helpful to somebody and educate them. Uh, it's not about uh, cutting price. It's not about offers are important, but it's not just about offers is you you want to try and be genuinely helpful to somebody and educate them on the process. When I think about retargeting and this would apply for um, email or anything like that, you it's a, you're following up with somebody that's already engaged with you is you want to try and educate them in a way that is meaningful to them, that gives value to them. And so a lot of what I see when people do retargeting or email is like, is very them focused, is what can I like, get a quote or, you know, engage with us for a reason that is good for the company that's advertising. Me, 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 me. Exactly. So if you go at it more um, from an educational perspective, of you probably have these questions. People don't know, even if they're searching for property management, a lot of people don't even know what that entails. They just know that they... They're, they're trying to figure out what that looks like. And so if you can educate people on the process, on how the pricing works, all these sorts of things on a general level, you're going to build trust with them. You're giving them something for free. Um, now, obviously, it makes sense to try and do it in a way that aligns their education with what you bring to the table as a company. Let's say, for example, that your, your tenant's screening is like top-notch, is one of your core different, differentiators from your competition. Well, you might want to talk about an article of, like, why it's really important um, to screen your tenants and why that helps you, you know, get the most out of your property, have long-term people. And then they don't feel like you're taking from them. You feel like they're giving to them and you're building goodwill with them.
1: Yep. so focusing on what people actually want, aligning incentives and to some degree playing the long game, right? Like leaning in, creating way more value than you're actually capturing and having strategic patience when it comes to actually capturing that value. I want to go back focusing on what you talked about with Facebook. What you described in brief was pixel tracking. So putting a Facebook pixel on the properties that you own and then waiting for folks to come back at some point later on in time and doing display ads on Facebook. Can you contrast that versus the other types of paid advertising that you can do on Facebook?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So um, if you think about Facebook, you are talking about audiences. To kind of compare it to Google, an audience would be like a keyword that you're you're typing in. You know, so someone types in property management, Seattle, um, then you want to show your ad to those people. Well, Facebook, you build audiences based on information you have about these people. So, you know, you could do it by, you know, typical things or demographic stuff like gender or age or location or interests or stuff like that. Well, retargeting is a way of creating an audience around people that have already engaged with you. And so when you're showing ads to them, you're showing ads to people that already know you. So there's a much, we were talking about temperature earlier. The reason that retargeting works much better than general Facebook advertising is the audience that you're targeting with your ads is much hotter. They know you, they already have some experience with you, and so they're much more interested in learning more about you and about property management.
1: Define much better for me. I mean, what's the common wisdom on the kind of conversion boost that someone may expect for advertising against a list of folks that are retargeted versus not?
2: Well, I mean... If you think about it, you already know that they're looking for property management. If you think about why somebody got on your retarding list, they already typed in property manager Seattle. Probably they showed up at your website, they showed up at your landing page, and so you you know that they're much more likely to buy property management services than they are that you are if you just like target people that own a home that live in Orlando or something like that. What's going to happen is is that every time you show your ad, you're mu- that's more much likely to turn into a click and much more likely to turn into a conversion because you're walking somebody that's already started the process of researching property management. And so you're going to see a lot better like prices on leads, a lot better conversion rates.
1: So just to qualify, though, in both cases, we're talking about people that are interested in property management, right? You're never going to target people that are not interested in property management, period. But in the other case, they've actually had some level of brand exposure. It's an important differentiation. Mike, can you talk to me about some of the educational considerations at this stage of the funnel? When we think about education, content, adding value, what type of content may appear at the top of the funnel versus in the middle of the funnel?
0: Well, just I want to make a general comment about the property management prospects life cycle. So the difference between the top and the bottom of the funnel may not be that much time, realistically, between somebody saying, you know, I should pay attention to this and I'm actually going to buy this thing. Uh, It's not like a house where they're thinking, oh gosh, I'll buy a house sometime next year. The whole thing starts to finish maybe 30 days. It could be longer, but it, it could also be extremely short. So that's something to think about that people can bounce between these these various uh, funnel spots pretty fast, back and forth. So the most important thing in terms of content from our perspective is just to simply answer the questions that people are actually asking, to make it about them and not about you, to demonstrate your expertise in a way that doesn't come across as stuffy and distant, but is personal and addresses them and makes them like you. Show a little bit of personality, address questions. I mean, there's some pretty universal types of questions. People do not understand very much about property management, period. They just don't. Any area of your business really is potentially fertile for content. People don't understand the screening process. They don't understand what can go wrong, for example. All you have to do is do a Google search about, you know, tenants gone wrong, even with Airbnb, for crying out loud. There's there's some nightmares there, right? And so talk about how your tenant tenant screening process will prevent those sorts of things and explain all the different nuances there. Now what you're doing is you're helping the customer understand why you're different. You're also demonstrating your expertise to the customer, which makes them feel comfortable. And all the time, they are learning more about the service that they're going to consume. So I would say any service that you provide, eviction services, screening um, you know, some are more interesting than others. People are very concerned about screening. People are very concerned about uh, paying attention to their home and what kinds of things you do to inspect the home. People are very concerned about pricing. They don't understand how it works. They don't understand why they should pay more. And if you don't help them understand why they should pay more, what the potential risks are of the, you not paying attention to their home, they're going to just hammer you on price because they don't know any better. And you need to help them understand, like, you, don't, you do not want me to be the cheapest option. Right, You you don't want the cheapest brain surgeon. And I'm telling you right now, this house is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars probably to you. Do you really want somebody who's not going to pay attention? No, you don't. And you want to help a person walk through that conversation. And so any content that's around basic common sense kinds of questions about your products, your services, I think are great um, in terms of uh, attracting people's interest to where they are. I, I wouldn't get too cute about it because frankly, talking about the future of the property management industry and all that sort of thing, I don't know if the average person is really that interested, to be honest with you. So I, I would keep it more meat and potatoes, nuts and bolts, things that you know something about and put it in relatable terms.
1: Discount brand surgery. I like that. A, a nice little uh, thing to anchor against. I think Ben Franklin has a quote as well, something to the effect of that, there's nothing more expensive than than discount services. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm with you on all that. I do want to dive into the quality threshold, though, because as you articulated, it's a box that people want to check. It's a guilt trip they're giving themselves. I got to be producing content. Is checking the box and doing is something better than nothing, doing any form of content, even if it's. Um, I don't want to say low quality, but if it is not a really sincere, heartfelt effort, it really is just that, checking a box. Is that better than nothing? If not, where does the quality threshold exist in your mind for somebody to actually get value from this? And I would just – let me give one more bit of context and that is the more competitive the landscape – Naturally, that bar goes up it 's a fairly uncompetitive landscape here, but does that excuse lower quality content? How do you guys think about that? People have high
2: expectations of content, whether it 's uh, you know industry wide or not. I mean people are experiencing a lot of content they're going to naturally compare your content against other content they 've seen, even if it 's not like they have other property management content to compare it to. they know what. A polished businesses content looks like there's a reason why people are trying to get a nice looking website on a certain level. If you're going to put out content, it's a quality signal to people on a certain level. And if you have medium quality stuff and they expect a higher level of content, then you might do yourself a disservice. The place where I think the focus probably needs to rest. Cause I
0: have bumped into people that have, Hey, this is commercial quality stuff. So they focus on the technical, the video aspect of it, mm-hmm. I would more of the focus, 80% of the focus on the quality of the information that's being communicated.
2: Sure.
0: Yeah. People can forgive technical issues. There's even some, sometimes where a rough looking format, people, it feels more real to people and not so slick and polished. I'm not suggesting being sloppy for sloppy's sake, but I would be much more concerned about thinking through, I'm going to give somebody a real quality answer here. I'm going to let my personality shine through a little bit to make this not wooden. Um, And whether or not it's the slickest, whether it's got, you know, an intro and an outro with bumper music and all that stuff. I personally think most of that stuff is overrated from the consumer standpoint. I mean, if you can do it fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being commercially um, up to date and all that stuff, but that, but the expenses start rising at that point. Um, But if you're just, sitting down at your microphone and you're just kind of riffing or writing, a, writing some, something because you just kind of feel like you should and it's kind of lame and it's kind of like everything else. It's, I mean, you have to ask yourself, Do you even if you, if you don't care, why should anybody else care about the content, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think you, there needs to be something you're passionate about, something that you feel like you're an expert in, something that's really delivering value. Um, that's where I'd spend my attention.
1: Yeah, I agree. So my thoughts on that are if you're going with checking off the box, then you need to check that box off pretty frequently. I very much am of the opinion that lower quality content can still make an impact if it is done at scale. It's not how I would want to run my business. It isn't how I run my business. But nonetheless, in a given market, if you're talking about one low quality post, that is of zero value. 10 low quality posts, probably of zero value. A 100 low quality posts, over time, this is an evergreen asset, you're going to get some level of value out of that. So in that regard, there still is a caveat about the, the something being better than nothing, but that's the caveat that I would give. In terms of quality, my disposition would absolutely be to think about, if you think about this pool of all of this content you could do, I would rather scoop together some of those resources and create a smaller number of higher impact, higher quality resources. And I just want to reference that this concept of content shock. And content shock is when exponentially increasing volumes of content intersect our limited human capacity to consume it. And I'm quoting Mark Schaefer there, who actually coined this concept. But I think we're well past the point where we went from radio to television to the internet and we were nowhere near the point of saturation. I think now we're at the point of saturation. People are not going to consume more content overall globally just to view yours your content is going to be viewed as one slice of the overall content they're going to look at it is a zero-sum game there are going to be some winners and some losers i would rather err on the side of meeting a higher quality bar to increase the overall odds that a somebody pays attention b they get value and c that they actually take action as a byproduct of having seen that content i think we're more or less on the same page there. So that kind of covers the overall look at the education type piece. We briefly glossed over reviews. Dylan, I think you mentioned that early on. Guys, talk to me about the place that reviews fit in. They clearly fit in at this section of the buying piece. But as the reviews ecosystem has become more robust, as consumers' expectations have have matured and evolved, how are you guys thinking about how reviews influence the buying decision and when they come into play these days?
2: One thing that I, we like to think about is, I mean, these are people searching. A good exercise to do is put yourself in the mind of Someone that you're trying to take from, let's say, the tofu down to the bofu, uh, from the top to the bottom of the funnel. What's that process look like for the average person? Well, a lot of times, it's easy to imagine, if you do that, that someone clicks on an outwards ad or clicks on your website, they see, oh, okay, this person's sort of on my list, um, but I'm going to go back. I'm not going to request a quote from them yet because I don't know that much about them. And then they go and they see your Google reviews and they Google your company and then your Yelp profile shows up, so they click on your Yelp profile and they go look at your Yelp reviews. And if your Yelp reviews are bad, maybe they never contact you. We like to think of the reviews as either you're either sending them further towards you or it could potentially be a roadblock if you think about what what is the customer going to come into contact with as they're researching, as they're going throughout the research process to decide whether or not you make the short list or somebody else makes the short list or not. Obviously, different uh, review sites have, different importance but you know we've been very much on the Google train for a while but we're coming to the point where we really believe in Yelp and Better Business Bureau as things that you need to focus on more because people are going to interact with that and if they see oh you've got good Google reviews but you have bad Yelp reviews and you have a bad BBB rating then then they're then they're conflicted and you don't want them to be conflicted you want to be an obvious choice where all three of them, you have the highest marks. And so it's like, wow, these guys really haven't figured it out.
1: So, Dylan, the way I hear you frame that is you're framing reviews and reputation as a hygiene factor. And this term is actually somewhat new to me. This This term came to me from Ben White. He talks about it in one of his books. And the idea of the hygiene factor is if you're going on a date with someone – If as you sit down for dinner, you realize that this person is emitting a profuse, foul odor, the date is over. So it's really – it's a starter to even get in the game. If I'm thinking about having a conversation with you and I notice that you have horrible reviews, the conversation is over. The other non-hygiene factors might be if I'm on a date, does this person – are they attractive? Are they intelligent? Do they have a good job? X, Y, Z – and correlating on the side of the property management company, it could be, do they have advanced technology? Are they friendly? Am I am I getting the right chemistry from the service rep that I'm dealing with, et cetera? But on the hygiene factor level, it really is a pass or fail type metric. I agree with you guys on that. You're talking about expanding from Google over to Yelp, over to BBB. Hey, people would love to have reviews everywhere, but strategically... When you talk about influencing these different mediums, how would you rate the level of difficulty? You know, if I throw one unit of time, money, and effort at trying to impact the reviews on Google versus Yelp versus BBB, what's the the ROI that that I'm going to get? Like, what's the landscape look like for influencing these different mediums? So,
0: we just recently became a Yelp agency. We've been a Google partner for a long time. So we got a little bit of insight, some of which is not kind of available to the general public. I would say that on your own, the average property manager goes through an evolution uh, as far as their reviews are concerned. You've got uh, the initial was, I shouldn't have to worry about this. It's not that big of a deal. Some property managers over the years have gotten really in the last, especially the last five, have really gotten on board. But there's still quite a divide between the two. The challenge there, of course, is that um, our backyards don't fill up with flowers. They fill up with weeds. So if you, in this business, do not pay attention to your reputation, you are going to find that renters are going to fill your profile up with garbage. It's easier to fix that in Google because Google's reviews stick better. That's a fact. Um, The average property management company has a poor Yelp profile. I would say 8 out of 10. It's also more difficult to try to fix. Once that happens, there's lots of different theories as to why. (laughs) Let's just put it this way. It's just whatever their algorithm is, it is harder to get reviews to stick in Yelp. And so I know lots of property management owners that tear their hair out. As far as BBB is concerned, to be honest with you, if you pay to be an an accredited BBB account, you will find that your, your profile looks pretty good, actually, most of the time. You don't need that many reviews, if any. I've seen people with no positive reviews have an A-plus profile uh, on Better Business Bureau. And that's, that's an important platform for people in the kind of over 50 crowd. I think the younger crowd, under 50, are going to look a lot more at Google and Yelp. And if people, people want to dismiss Yelp, and I, I would just encourage them to think in, in these terms, probably roughly two-thirds of searches online uh, fall somewhere in the Google world specifically when you're talking about desktop primarily, uh, some mobile. But when you start moving into the world of mobile and outside of Google, you'll find that roughly about a third of searches online are being done on Yahoo and uh, and Bing. And then you also have the Apple platform, which uh, dominates on the mobile side of things. Well, you're not going to see a Google review being pulled up on the Apple platform, nor on Yahoo, nor on Bing. Those are all Yelp. So if somebody, and it depends, actually, it does vary by geography. If you're on the West and East coast, uh, you're more likely to have a a Google browser. And if you're in the South, you're more likely to have a search on Bing, (laughs) interestingly. But when you do that, if somebody's searching for your reputation, they're going to see your Yelp profile. So if your Yelp profile sucks, you don't know how many people are not going to come to your business because your Yelp profile doesn't look correct. So I would say those are the three that are worth your energy. The only one I would toss in there for a little bit of effort sometimes is that Google will pull, sometimes pull Facebook. If you want to open up your Facebook profile for a little while and and get some reviews, get, you know, five reviews, uh, four or five stars, and then shut it down and just let it sit there. Google will continue to pull because the reason that matters is if somebody does a brand search, like the property management, whatever, um, you're going to see the little box on the right-hand side that displays your business. It'll show your Google review profile, but right underneath that Google will scrape other review profiles And if your Facebook profile is terrible, it'll show right underneath there and that's not not something that you want. So those would be the profiles that we would suggest you focus on. You're going to get most bang for your buck out of Google. And then second of all, unfortunately, uh, even though it's a lot of work, I think Yelp is probably the the place where most property management companies ought to invest some energy.
2: And there's something that we like to talk about around here called shortlist choice or um, obvious choice. Those are two different things. So shortlist choice is, I have a good enough review profile to sort of put myself on the person's researching shortlist. So they're just to look at reviews. I seem like I'm at, up near the top of the pack. And obvious choice is, wow, they are clearly the top runner. They got five star and they got like 300 reviews. Like clearly they are dominating. The way that we would probably talk about it is in terms of like distribution, because I think, Jordan, that's sort of what you're asking is like where you want to focus and how do you judge like the importance of getting reviews up on different platforms. To me, the first priority would be being a shortlist choice on all the platforms. You want to remove any conversion roadblocks in the process. So if someone's researching your company, you don't want them to see one good thing and then one really bad thing because that's going to maybe make them second-guess things. So you want to try to get yourself up to a shortlist choice on all the platforms. And then probably after that, I would go for a obvious choice on Google. So you're you're on the short list for Yelp, but then then you pour everything you got left into Google and you try to get 2x the amount of reviews as your next competitor while still maintaining a high star rating. And then when somebody searches for you and they see you next to your competitors, they're like, wow, that's that's a big difference.
0: I think that the average property management owner really is underestimating the importance of what we're talking about here. Uh, I, I'm not saying they don't think that reviews are important. I think people do think that I just don't know that if they know how important it is to every phase of their business, as we talk about top middle and bottom of funnel uh, ultimately, you're talking about out of every 10 people, how many are going to become customers. You are going to find that the conversion rate um, increases as your review profile goes up. People are bouncing around. Amazon has changed the game in terms of how people evaluate product and yeah. it. If anybody questions that, I just say, when was the last time you bought an Amazon product that had three stars or below? It just doesn't happen.
1: Never. In, in an era of ubiquity of choice, never. It would be insanity to do so. It's actually changed
0: our business model. We've recently uh, been able to offer a guarantee that our leads will close, which is, which is something that's insane. Uh, on the on the surface, you know, we're not just passing the lead along, but we're we're saying, hey, one out of four, one out of five of our leads are going to turn into an actual door. And in order to do that, we had to dig into this and and ask ourselves, what are the factors that are influencing conversion here? What are the things that we can really hang our hats on? And one of the things we kept circling back around to was the review profiles, particularly in Google and Yelp. Those were the key drivers because not only does a customer feel comfortable. They also do a certain amount of pre-selling of themselves. So when they come to you via your profile, they feel like I've quote unquote done my research. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to prospects and say, oh yeah, I've looked at your review profile. So they're already half convinced. As long as you take that process from there, you're just confirming they're already good judgment in picking you on the short list. Because when the average prospect comes to an ad or they come to your profile, the first question they're asking is not about the amazing services. They're asking, gosh, I just don't want to get screwed over. I don't understand that much. I'm a little bit nervous. I don't, really don't understand property management. So I I want to be comfortable and feel like I'm not getting it, getting it cheated in some way or waste my time. I, I also don't want to call six companies. I probably only want to call two. The majority of people only want to call one company. So if I can be a superior review profile... I'm going to get a disproportionate number of the phone calls and those people that do call are already going to have this warm, positive feeling about me, half convinced. So about half my job is done. You're going to find that, that all your various steps are going to work a lot better. Your conversion rates are going to be a lot higher if that's supported by a strong review profile, particularly in Google and Yelp.
1: I completely agree with what you're saying. It's a disproportionate edge that you receive. But can we also just kind of pause and talk about the disproportionate negative inertia that comes from negative reviews. I want to get y'all's take on this. As a property management owner, now now I care. Now I care about influencing um, my reviews. And I have two sets of scenarios. I'm I'm either starting with uh, 20 one-star reviews or I'm starting with a blank slate. In terms of the impact that those existing negative reviews are going to have, do you believe that that negative inertia makes it a lot harder to uh, to overcome? And I guess really what I'm getting at is in the same way that somebody could have that positive disposition, somebody that, review, that sees those negative one-star reviews, particularly the worst they are, is going to feel even more empowered to leave you another negative review to pile on, Right. Oh, sure. It's also hard from the
0: property management owner's perspective too, right? They're discouraged um, <laughs> and feeling like, gosh, I've got a mountain to climb. So it, yes, if you but if, if you don't touch it, you're right. You're probably going to end up with, I mean, even if they're they're not more inclined, I'm just telling you, renters are going to leave bad reviews disproportionately. They just are. And you're right, they probably will pile on over time. It's one of those situations where you kind of just have to buckle up. If your profile's not good, you just have to get moving and take responsibility for it. I, I do see some owners not wanting to own this to their detriment. So they'll like, yeah, you know, I, I've heard him bellyache about all the, the renters. I agree with them. Renters are never going to get it though. So you're either going to say, okay, the truth is renters are never going to get us. They're always going to blame us for situations that we, we really can't control. That's a, that is a fact of life in this business. If you can own that and say, okay, that's going to be the case. So instead of belly aching about ten bad reviews, go get forty good ones. So the math is is that the, the the bad ones get buried and they don't even get noticed. And that's really the only solution that we've seen that will actually work over time. Frankly, we run into owners that just don't want to take responsibility about this, and they're forever going to be. And by the way, this is an arms race. Your online reputation is an asset, and. I guarantee you that five years from now, it will be more valuable than it is even is now because Google is on a mission to give consumers what they want and consumers want relevancy. And one of the things that's relevant to the consumer is your reputation. So Google's testing all sorts of things like putting star ratings in your ads. So do you want to be the only person not showing your star ratings in your ads because you're embarrassed about your star ratings? Pretty soon it's going to start impacting all your areas of advertising potentially. So, I'm telling you, if, if if this is an area that you're not on board with, you need to get on board and just play the long game. Start getting some good reviews. And and the other thing is, honestly, sometimes you deserve some bad reviews. So improve your internal processes. It's not all accident that you're getting. If you if you've got you know 30 reviews and your star rating is 1.7, you probably deserve it. So you should, probably should fix some things before you go out and try to solicit a bunch of reviews. Fix some internal process. Find out what the heck's going on. <laughs>
1: That's going to make you a popular guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm just <laughs> telling you, you, you <laughs> those are facts, man. We've actually, so
2: it's funny, we, we've done some review profile help for some of our customers. And one time we were, uh, the way we were sending them out was we were sending it out by property manager. So the the customers of a particular property manager were getting reviews and we were tracking which the property manager was for the customer. One of the property managers got, a bunch of complaints when we were using our review gathering system. I mean these weren't put into the profiles so was we, we kind of filtered them off. But it helped the property management company owner see, well this employee needs at least a talking to. Like as you dig into this process, you can find like, oh, there's some maybe some reasons why I'm getting bad reviews. I need to fix it. And there's maybe deeper issues like Mike was saying underneath why these things exist.
1: Sure. I mean, it's got to be a corollary to an NPS score in that regard. Certainly something to pay attention to on the operations side. Last question on reviews, and then we'll move on. How do you guys think the value of unofficial reviews? Obviously, when we think about the ways that people try and influence their reviews, there's the very popular methodology, regardless of what tech solution or what platform, the basic methodology is to aggressively solicit the reviews And when you get a positive, uh, an indicator that somebody is happy, send them over to Yelp, send them over to to Google. If you get an indication that somebody is happy, send them over to an area where they can leave a review that will not reflect in those areas. That's basically an, an internal review. That's the basic methodology. How do you guys think about the value of those unofficial Reviews uh, aside from that the value of that methodology is being a shield from from getting those negative ones on your side. If you have a lot of unofficial five star reviews coming from somewhere like uh, reputation.com, etc., do you guys think there's value in that? No, <laughs> <laughs> Dylan, go ahead I mean, and expand, about, expand upon my answer. But I the answer that,
0: is no.
2: <laughs> I think part of it is why, why would they trust? anonymous reviews on your site, or maybe they're not anonymous, but they're like, there's no picture. There's no last name. It's just Bob leaving this review and this platform that they don't know. So the whole part of reviews is try to get them to trust you. And if they don't trust the platform that is getting the reviews to them, then they're not going to trust you further because they don't trust the system. The challenge that you've got
0: is people have already decided that they trust Google and Yelp. Whether they should or not is beside the point. They've already decided that they're quote unquote legit. There's nothing wrong with Reputation.com or BirdEye. I mean, we're a BirdEye partner, so you know we're not against them. We're not against Reputation.com or Get Kudos or any of those platforms that people tend to use. Challenge is, is the consumer doesn't know who they are, so it looks a little like gamed. Whether people admit it or not, we, we're bombarded with so much information that we are we are filtering machines, and. We pick up on super subtle differentiators in order to just save time and to be able to filter through the thousands of messages that we get. And one of those things is, do I recognize this? So if they see a review on Google, they figure that Google has done something to protect those reviews Likewise, Yelp. On the other hand, if it's on your site and it looks, it kind of looks good, but the average person, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, when you just do a random search online and somebody says, they have all these reviews there on their website. Do you really believe all of them? I don't. I do a lot of online searching. It's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. That doesn't seem that credible. And I think it goes into that same bucket. It's better than nothing, I suppose. But frankly, you're better off just going straight to the source and making
2: sure that your Google and Yelp reduces terms of energy you're concerned. I mean, that's my biggest problem with all of it. Is it feels like when you're reaching out to reviews to your current customers, you have like a certain amount that you can ask of them. Now, if you ask them to leave you a review on a platform that is not as significant to you, then that's um, goodwill that you're taking down that you could use to get a review on Google or on Yelp, which I think was much more of a strategic decision.
1: Before we go on, I want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Growth Summit, which is happening at the end of January in 2018. If you consider yourself a growth-minded property management entrepreneur... If you're interested in leveling up your sales marketing game, and if you want to go pro and network with other best-in-class entrepreneurs and stay on the bleeding edge of the industry, you need to be at the PM Grow Summit. We truly bring in the best of the best, and you can get your ticket now by going to www.pmgrowthsummit.com and using the coupon code JORDAN, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, to get $100 off your ticket. See you there. Let's move on now to talk about the bottom of the funnel. And now we're more or less entering where the conversation typically starts, where most property management owners and brokers want to start the conversation. Is that the money, right? I want that qualified lead. I want that hot, motivated person that's ready to sign the check. So this is where people tend to have the strongest opinions, both in terms of just what they've dealt with, right? I mean, gutturally, if you're running a property management shop, you've dealt most of your experience is at the bottom of the funnel, having one-off sales conversations, et cetera. But it's also the area that people are most eager to influence because most people are not minded towards the long game. And I want to start here. I want to talk about email. We skipped over marketing automation in the MoFu section. With marketing automation, the opportunity is to streamline and optimize your systematic communications with prospects, both to get them on a list and then nurture them once they're on the list. So I guess I should just ask, do you guys see uh, a significant place for, for email and marketing automation in the middle of the funnel? Or if, if you guys were in the shoes of the, the property manager, would you be primarily leveraging that in the bottom of the funnel?
2: I mean, to me, they sort of Blend together when we're talking about education like we did previously. I don't think just because somebody reaches out to you that they're done being educated. I'll break down the marketing automation thing into you're trying to sell them on the idea of property management, and help them, and gain trust with them, and then you're also trying to, you know, push the sales conversation forward. And so I think there's a place for both of those. You know, we said we skipped over it in MOFU. I think that they're. In the same way that we're talking about retargeting, I think of it as sort of like retargeting too. they, They reach out to you, but you should be educating them with the same stuff that you're educating them elsewhere throughout that process.
0: You're trying to help this consumer understand what it is you do and why you're a good choice. So higher up in the funnel, maybe a bit more content, more authority positioning. Like these guys seem to know what they're doing sort of thing. As they get closer to the finish line, it's a little bit more, this is how we compare to your other choice because that's the natural thought process that a consumer goes through. Like, well, I've got these choices in front of me. Why should I pick you instead of these companies? And so your communications at that point probably should be more around those sorts of things. Any kinds of guarantees you offer because people are very risk averse. And so, gosh, what if I make the wrong choice? Well, gosh, here's the thing, you know, you can leave at any time and we'll refund you up to 90 days. And those are the kinds of things. And you don't want them in a big clump. You want to drip them out to people so they can kind of consume and savor each piece as you go on. I even I'll add one more thing. This is moving beyond bottom of the funnel to, to getting people to re up. And that is, I think there should be a drip campaign going on after somebody signs the contract to help them feel good about the decision. You know, the, the follow up, aren't you glad you bought our car sort of thing and just letting people know the things you're doing for them. You know, we're, we're doing quarterly inspections. We just wanted you to know, and here's some things we're taking all your phone calls so you can have more free time. I mean, just something small, just to remind them because people are going to, you know, when they sign that lease, they're going to be making another buying decision. And if you want the lifetime value of your customers to extend out to four, five, six years, They have to continue to feel good about working with you. So your sales process is never done, is what I'm saying, even if you get people to sign the first time.
1: Well said. So the point here is that marketing automation, in terms of scope, applies to the entire life cycle. You push it up as early as you can, right? You get that lead captured. You, you gate that lead magnet. You get somebody on your list and then you educate them until they're sufficiently motivated that now they're a prime target. They've, they've engaged with the educational content. They've silently raised their hand and indicated that they would now be ripe for some additional more sales-oriented, company-oriented type communications. And then you have the strategic offer, whether or not that is um, the free rental price, analysis or some kind of a discount, whatever it may be, that's when the sales conversation begins. So let's kind of break down the sales process with these folks that we're talking about now we're talking about leads. We've graduated from from the prospect up to a lead, somebody that is ready to buy in the near term. They have a near term buying need. And the very first thing that happens is initial contact. Somebody calls you, they fill out a contact form. Mike, I know you have some some opinions. You've seen <laughs> this firsthand. You've dealt with calls coming in. Talk to me about the importance of managing first impressions and that first
0: touch, we'll put our money where our mouth is I'll tell you some of the things that we're testing on our own leads um, because we believe in it so much. so we've experienced very uneven results in terms of people actually following up on leads as quickly as we think they should, and so we, the question we've asked ourselves is well how can we help our customers do a better job because life happens? Um, the property manager isn't always available whatever so one of the things we're testing right now is as soon as you opt in, you're sent to a thank you page. that tells you exactly what's going to happen. And you receive a text and you receive an email in your inbox all within the first 15 seconds. Because our belief is that as soon as that person clicks the submit or whatever button and say, hey, why don't you contact me? The job interview process has started. They're trying to decide if they're going to give you their multi-hundred thousand dollar asset to take care of for them. And they want to know that you're on the ball. So if the first impression you give them is, oh my gosh, these guys are all over it, that's a good signal. That's what you want to send people. On the other hand, if you don't call them back for 48 hours, they're like, God, this, this is the first date. It's only going to get worse from here. Holy smokes, right? So it's crucial from our perspective that people are all over the first contacts, that, they're, that they contact them in the first day, but we're even trying with some automated stuff to give people the impression, Boom it's like within 15 seconds. We we're, we're we're working on this thing as soon as
1: you contact us. So you got to pick up the phone, you got to call people back. If you can't call somebody back, and this is a piece of advice that I give all the time, I'd love to hear your commentary. My advice is, of course, you want to have the most qualified person within your organization call that lead back, pick up the phone initially, but if they can't, what is the utility of stair-stepping down your organization to where at the very end, you have your front desk person, whoever the least qualified or least trained person in your organization, it's better to have that person call a lead back within 15 seconds versus having the right person call back in an hour, in six hours, a day later, etc. True or False. Oh,
0: definitely true. I mean, for example, another test that we've got queued up is what happens if when, once you opt in, what happens if an assistant, for example, will call you, let's say, Jordan, that you wanted property management services, and I call you within one minute and say, hey, this is Mike, I'm I'm XYZ's assistant, XYZ's in employment. I just wanted to let you know that we're on this, we're working on it, I want to confirm all your information and just let you know that, that he or she's going to be back in touch with you within the next you know, eight hours or six hours or whatever. What
1: what does that feel like inside to have somebody
0: boom on top of it? You understand
1: what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, in a lead simple paradigm, which is the one that I happen to live in, I'm imagining even using a third party service. Let's say you took it a step further. You've got yourself as the primary contact, Uh, somebody fills out a contact form. Lead Simple calls you first, you're unavailable. Call rolls over, calls somebody else, they're unavailable. Call somebody else, they're unavailable. Even if we had a third-party external service, a VA, whoever calling that person back, as long as the callback is still happening within 30 seconds, we're still getting the worm fuzzies. We're still leveraging the wow moment. That's what I talk about a lot. You call somebody back within 30 seconds after filling out a contact form, it's a wow moment. You call somebody back in an You're just doing your job. You call somebody back a day later, you're officially late. Big opportunity there. Past the initial contact, when we start engaging in the actual conversation, where we're having the conversation in your mind, what is the right way to approach that conversation that is effectively happening over and over and over again? Common objections, issues, concerns. Well, I've, I've had
0: the benefit of listening to. Literally thousands of these. I mean, we've, we've generated 18,000 leads in, in the time we've been doing business in the property management space, and um, a decent number of them were recorded. We listened to them, and I've also taken a number of them myself because sometimes they'll bounce back to us. And so the most important thing that if I was going to say, hey, make sure and do this thing, is you actually have to be a decent human being and actually listen. I realize that's going to sound, I don't know what that's going to sound like to the person listening to this, this podcast.
2: they're not a human being if they don't.
0: (laughs) Well, here's the thing. The average person comes in from they're they're frustrated or they're busy or wherever. They want to know that you heard what they had to say. So you just listen carefully. You don't launch into your speech. You listen carefully without sounding kind of cheesy. You repeat back to them, make sure that you got what they want. And I realize that sounds like elementary one-on-one stuff, but I will tell you it is routinely ignored. And if you don't do that, The prospect is sitting there thinking, they don't get me. They don't get me. And that's what's on their mind. Yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. But if you can hear them out, listen to what they're, you know, oh, yeah. So it sounds to me like you want to know about what we're going to charge. You want to know what services we offer. And it sounds like your last experience, you were frustrated because the property wasn't inspected frequently enough. Did I get all that right? That's what the prospect, and the prospect will either say yes or no. They'll say, well, yes, and there was one more thing. Great. So, and then you just summarize it again. And then that also gives you the opportunity to not launch immediately into the price conversation that most people lead with. Yeah, I'd like to know what you charge. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've heard somebody say that. Yeah, what do you charge? Oh, we charge 8%. Okay, thank you. Bye. The conversation's over in 20 seconds. So in, instead of that, what about something like, okay, so I, what I hear from you is that you're very concerned about price. Did I get that right? Yeah. I said, I will definitely address that. And then you want to be able to bridge into some other conversations and not just talk about price because that person should be concerned more about just uh, something else than just price because it's not just price. We all know that. Right. Yeah. It's a dollar. Right. I mean, (laughs) a dollar for what? Right. I mean, they, they need more information. They're just what they're really telling you. If that's all they ask is I don't know what else to ask. I'm nervous. This whole process makes me nervous. So you have to be bridging people in there.
1: I like where you're coming from. I just want to pause on that. I like where you come from, Mike, because you're not blaming them. You're saying they don't know what to ask. They're an uneducated, undiscriminating consumer, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just where they're at. So rather than blaming them and saying, oh, hit red flag. They're a tire kicker. They're just asking about price. They want the lowest price rather than projecting that onto someone in the absence of asking a bunch of qualifying questions, start off with the most optimistic assumption, which is they simply don't know what to ask. I love that advice. Keep going.
0: Well, I, the other thing that, that I see happen over and over again is people just aren't ready for the, the obvious questions that are going to be asked. So if you are taking a property management phone call, you're going to get asked what to charge. It's going to happen nine out of 10 times. You're going to be asked, what services do you provide? How does the process work? I mean, almost 98% of the time when I take a call, those subjects come up. So you better have a good answer. Don't just shoot from the hip. Think it through. And when I say think it through, not just think it through like, okay, here's my answer, but also think in terms of the prospect. Like I need to have a quick way of saying this that's engaging, a metaphor, an illustration, a quick story something that will engage people because you're going to get asked 80% of the time. You're going to get asked the same things over and over again. Is it a script? It kind of is actually it should it sound like a script? No, it shouldn't sound like a script because then people, the magic is broken. You're not engaging with them as a human being, which is primary because it breaks trust, but you need to be comfortable enough in your own skin, understand your product well enough to be able to help people visualize and understand because you're, What you're asking them to do is to understand an abstract service that they haven't received. You somehow got to make that real enough for people to get it. Uh, I'm not saying endless stories, 10 minutes worth of of extemporary speaking. I'm just saying something quick, something that gets to the point, and then quickly circling back around. It's like, does that make sense? Does that cause more questions? What's on your mind? Or can we set an appointment to talk more in depth? Whatever seems to be appropriate. But you need to be ready with that basic stuff because no matter how much you empathize and connect with them initially in the phone call, sooner or later, they want to know if you know anything, right? I mean, you have to know something about property management. You have to know how your company is different than companies A, B, and C.
1: Well said, getting your pitch dialed in, right? So you're doing a little dance here, right? And if you know you're going to get asked to dance over and over and over hundreds of times a year... Every time you're either kind of just gonna intuit out this little, this little awkward shuffle. Or you're going to have practiced in this thing that is massively important hundreds of times a year. When you get asked to dance, why not be practiced to the point where you can whip out your salsa, bachata, merengue, lindy hop, whatever you're into, be prepared for the money question that you know is going to come over and over again. Very good advice. When you talk about listening, I'm reminded of the skit of uh, the Me Monster from Brian Reagan. Have you guys come across that? No, I haven't. Well, go go Google it. If you're listening to this right now in the audience, go Google me, Monster, Brian Reagan. I'll link it up in the show notes. It's a hilarious exaggeration of this idea of focusing on we're number one here's our awards. We're fortune 500, et cetera. All of those things matter to some degree, but they're not primary. What's primary is that I have a specific problem and I'm trying to figure out whether or not you can understand it, which in part means you've got to listen and regurgitate it back to me. And if you can't do that, everything else is just going to be window dressing around the top. Now let's talk about pricing, discounts, fees. When you get that client on the other end of the phone that you believe is purely motivated by price, you're either going to hang up and say not qualified or you're going to stand your ground or you're going to cave on pricing. And unfortunately, extreme discounting, especially for early younger companies that don't feel like they have the credibility or the leg to stand down is pretty common. In your mind, what is the right time and context in which to leverage discounts to actually close a deal?
2: You want to keep it later in the process, right? Obviously, if you don't have to offer any kind of discount, you don't want to. But let's say, for example, that you've had your initial phone conversation with somebody. You've sent them um, some follow-up information, but they're further along in the process. They just need something to get them over the edge. That's when I think that offering them something for free to maybe re-engage with you to get off the fence might be something that would be worth considering. I couldn't agree more because then the the number of people you're offering
0: discount to, A, it's a very small pool and B, you're not like publicly advertising it and sending that signal out there that, you know, we're open for wheeling and dealing. It's not a good way to run a business from my perspective, unless that's your entire model, right? Unless you're like, we're Walmart and that's what we're going to lead with. Fine. That's your entire model. But most property management companies, that's not the way. They they are offering a discount as a concession, as a way to get business in the door. And I would say, if you're consistently getting that objection, you either, A, you need to take a look at what the competition is in your marketplace and, and reframe your entire model. Because if, if you're charging 10% and everybody in the market is six, you, you do have a serious competitive problem. But most of the time, it's not that situation. It's just that the consumer doesn't get why you should pay more. I mean, my wife sells women's clothes. And if you don't understand the difference between high-quality fabrics and low-quality fabrics, you're not going to understand why she's going to charge you $1,000 for a dress. It's just not going to make any sense to you. You have to understand the difference in fabrics, and it's her job as a salesperson to point out this isn't just your normal cotton. This is Pima cotton from the mountains of, you know, Chile or wherever the heck, you know, whatever you're talking about. You need to give a good answer to the consumer and say, you know something, we charge a fair price. And I think that's actually a really good word to anchor around. Because I hear people say, well, we're not the cheapest. I think that immediately sends the consumer into, oh, my God, I better be in defensive mode. They're going to take money from me. All you really look thinking is like, hey, we charge a fair price. And here's why that, that should matter to you. Let me explain why you want to work with a company that charges a fair price. Because you don't get something for nothing. If we charge you nothing up front, we can't afford to pay attention to you in your home. Do you want us to ignore your home? You don't, do you? I wouldn't want somebody to ignore my home. And yet the companies that charge bottom basement fees, they're forced to because they don't have, they don't have the time and attention because they're, they're out making money. They're, they're bringing the next customer in. It's an endless cycle. So you want to pay at a fair price because you want your home taken care of. There's worse things than overpaying, quote unquote, by $10 a month. The worst thing is getting $50,000 worth of damage to your home because we weren't paying attention and doing our job.
1: Well said. And it's worth noting that your branding and market positioning either supports or detracts from that claim. Anybody can say, yeah, we charge a lot because we provide high quality service. But everything about everything from the aesthetic of your design to the uh, copy that is on your website to all of the interactions that you've had up to that point either add to That claim making sense or there being even more incongruency of, well, hey, everything I've seen up to this point looks like a a B-level company, but you're charging me uh, A-plus level rates. That really doesn't make sense. I have one last question on the sales… Process and that is meeting in person versus online. I get really divided opinions. The default is meeting in person. It's the comfortable thing to do. You know, if if you're really committed in that route, you can you can always lay claim to belly to belly in person sales. I get the value of that, particularly in the context of closing. On the flip side, for smaller operators, broker owner, it's a one man show. He's thinking about windshield time. How much driving? Am I going to be doing? And even if you have a couple of BDMs, you're still thinking about windshield time because that's cost and money that's going out the door. Do you guys have any strong opinions on in-person versus online uh, pitching?
0: It really boils down to certain practical considerations. There's never going to be a substitute for a three-dimensional salesperson and the human touch. So, People that, that that favor in person, they're right on that level it, because that's what—that's why we have meals with our family and we talk to our friends face-to-face instead of just over the phone all the time. So there's definite benefit there. The question is not whether it's, it's superior because it probably is superior. The question is whether it's practical and whether you can really do it at scale, whether it's the incremental benefit is worth it versus other options that you have because We've got customers that 50% of their customers are
2: outside the area, so it's not even a consideration. can't even be done. It's not just phone call, they never see your face, and be in meeting. There's in-between solutions that we've seen people do. We've seen people that they have services where they can send a quick video to people via email. And so then at least you're getting some kind of like they know your face, they've sort of talked to you, they've seen who you are. Um, So there's definitely ways to do in-between solutions that you should consider as well in all this we were talking about various content
0: options in terms of sharing stuff with folks. I think it's highly effective to shoot a quick video of yourself, answering some of these questions, because there's things you can communicate um, through your facial expressions and your tone that you can't necessarily uh, always communicate via written. And not everybody's a good writer anyway, but everybody can just sit there and talk. And I think a series of, of small, short videos that address ongoing questions could be valuable and kind of an in between thing as well. I don't know, you know, I, I've thought about times of things like, oh gosh, well, we'll do a live Skype session and do face to face. I kind of think that's overwhelming to the average person and probably not going to be very effective. So I don't know if you can go that route unless somebody's relatively sophisticated or you're working in a, a hub where that's expected like. Maybe in Austin, Texas, you could do that or Seattle or the Bay Area where people assume that sort of thing a little bit more. But I think the average person probably usually develop really good phone skills. I mean, honestly, I think that's going to cover most situations unless in your particular area, you're servicing a a 30-mile territory around your office because it's undoubtedly true that the majority of customers feel more comfortable when the property management company is close to their property, whether that should be true or not. They, they do. They feel like you're going to be more Johnny on the spot. You're going to have more success with that more with that personalized touch closer to your office. But I just don't know how well that scales, practically speaking. If I was running a company, I would probably employ a mix, frankly. If it was easy and close by the office, um, I'd do that. And But for the most part, I probably would assume that we couldn't meet face-to-face. And so all my processes needed to operate without that additional advantage so to speak
1: fair enough and the bottom line is you have to account for both anyway you're going to have out of state overseas investors you do bring up the good point about the online meeting being a little bit of a tech hassle i'm thinking about everything we had to do to get this <laughs> interview going on online <laughs> i'm thinking about i'm thinking about having done hundreds of pitches myself via join.me online tools etc you know every 10th one there's just some nuclear Uh, blow up with people just not being able to figure out the technology. And if I was segmenting that and saying, you know, the subset of my audience that is more or less technologically savvy, I'd probably alter my approach. Plenty of considerations there. Appreciate the feedback. I want to move on now to the rapid fire section of the interview. One thing I want to get out of the way before we do that is to talk about your tech stack. We talked about top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, bottom of the funnel. We did not talk about onboarding. We did not talk about client retention. And we did not talk about generating referrals, maybe... Uh, food for thought for another show we'll have to see but before we move to the rapid fire section I want to just talk briefly about the tech stack what do you guys use in your day-to-day tech stack what do you advise for clients when it comes to CRM landing pages email marketing uh, hack online meetings give me some names
2: Dylan this is you baby (laughs) (laughs) part of it is I probably recommend different things for our customers than I would for us but let's say for landing pages I really like Undounce They also offer some um, overlay options as part of it. So um, overlays are if somebody's leaving your your site, you can offer them something if they're bouncing. So you have lots of flexibility. It's really easy to use. They have lots of designs that are already in there. In terms of marketing automation and follow-up long-term, we use Drip. and We find that really easy to use and uh, very affordable.
1: Shout out to Rob Walling with Drip, great product. We're making the switch over from Active Campaign. Right now, we're split between Mailchimp, Active Campaign, and Intercom. Can't ditch Intercom, but we're trying to ditch Active Campaign and Mailchimp and move over to Drip. But I would note it is a little bit more of a, of a power user type type situation to get the most of the value. The other categories were CRM and anything else. This is going to sound like we're trying to suck up, but it's Lead
0: Simple and nobody else. We, we've actually built it into our onboarding process now. As we're trying to guarantee close rate on our leads, we have to know if the lead's close. And so we need a feedback loop. And so we're working with our customers to get on Lead Simple. There's just not another choice. We see people try to kind of cobble together some stuff. Please and, don't make a custom solution. Please don't. Yeah, no, <laughs> don't. It's, it's affordable and you can't, you can't know how fast you respond to your calls and any other solution. That's one thing you can't find anywhere else. You're also not going to find anything that's, that's um, uh, specifically for property management. There's just not another option. And so because when you purchase a CRM, it's an investment in the future because you're not going to just switch CRMs willy-nilly. Once you've once you got all your data in there, it's a pain in the neck once you've trained people. So you have to ask yourself, not only which features do I like, but also what's the future of this company in this industry? Will they innovate? Will they continue to keep up with what's going on? What if things change? That's the part that I don't think people fully evaluate when they look at software. You have to company itself. For example, lead simple, you're going to see at the NARPUM conferences, they're going to be accountable in that way to the industry. They're going to constantly get to be getting feedback. And so if something changes in the property management industry in, in two years, you can bet that sooner or later that feature or if it's important is going to show up someone lead simple. So I just think it's not a hard decision to make and I'm not making any money by making that recommendation today.
1: (laughs) Well, Mike, you're going to make me blush. I appreciate the feedback on that. That answers the question about the tech stack And now we're going to jump right into the rapid fire section of this interview. And the point here is I just want to get guttural answers from you guys. And the very first question is how much is too much to pay for a new property management contract? I'm talking about customer acquisition cost, and we're not factoring in sales labor just on the marketing dollars that went out the door. How much is too much to pay for a new Property management contract. Uh,
0: the guttural answer is um, it will vary by company, but if you if you wanted some broad guidelines, we were on the the podcast uh, your your podcast the other day with Renters Warehouse. They'll pay between five hundred and twenty five hundred dollars. Right.
1: That's an acquisition purchase. I, I
0: understand. I understand, but it's but it's a relative benchmark that you can look at, say, and say it sounds insane. How, how can they offer so much and I think the reality gets down to you have to know how long a customer is sticking around and how much you're making. You have to know the lifetime value of your customer to actually answer that question. Cause I've, I've heard people answer $300, $900, a thousand dollars, 700, 500. I mean, and people are very passionate. Like I can't make a nickel if, if it's over, you know, if it's $600, of uh, a paid contract. So the answer is it will vary depending on your model and how long you can retain a customer. Most of my customers that I talk to anecdotally seem to be able to live with somewhere between 300 and 700 bucks. That seems to be fairly standard. Some have come to me and said $1,000 works for them. They're willing to buy portfolio stuff at 1,000 bucks. So that's the range. And I know if somebody says 100 or $200, that they're not gonna be long in the land because you can't really scale much. What you're really saying is, I'm gonna take only referral business at that point and not even pay a realtor for that. A realtor referral cost more
2: than that. This is sort of a side issue with this, but um, obviously when you're talking about cost per closed deal, you're going to be looking at it on different sources. So maybe you're looking at it, if you're sophisticated, you're looking at AdWords, you're looking at it from Yelp, looking from your website. Lead Simple helps to track all of this. But the overall arching conversation that we're having here is that the funnel is squiggly. Um, this is a technical word we like to use that. Um, <laughs> So someone clicks on your AdWords ad, they click back, they go to your Yelp profile, they go to your website, and then they convert to a customer. There's a fancy word uh, called attribution um, of how you figure out what's responsible for that. But my overall point is that you want to be careful when trying to attribute certain things, especially if they're higher in the funnel, uh, to a price for closed contract. So for example, let's take AdWords. Let's say that you're closed contract, a cost per closed contract is $600. We really are like looking at a $400 one. Um, that's what you were aiming for. Well, part of the issue might be that some of that traffic is bleeding down further down the funnel without getting attached to AdWords. And so if you turn off AdWords, you're going to turn down stuff. Turn off stuff that's further down the funnel. So just as a word of caution for people as you're kind of trying to judge, okay, what's, what's my cost per closed contract? And like what's responsible for that or not. And just so you don't shoot yourself in the foot and realize, oh crap, I'm getting half of the closed deals I thought I was because I turned off this thing. You know, Yelp is crazy good in terms of the cost per closed deal and AdWords sucks, but maybe they're working together.
1: Good thoughts. Who do you guys learn from?
2: So one of our uh, core influences, I would say is um, a guy named Perry Marshall. The reason we learn so much from him is he's both on a, Technical marketing level, that's kind of how he started. So if you're trying to do DIY AdWords, which, you know, good luck. But if you're trying to get a good, like, how to beginner's guide, um, his book is really the best you can go with. It avoids getting too technical and focuses on higher level things. that He's transitioned to more of a strategic thinking. I know that you are a big fan of 80-20, Jordan. He's really focused a lot of his uh, stuff to there. If you're unfamiliar with the A20 principle, it's how 20% of your efforts, 80% of the results. And so you can really leverage every part of your business from marketing to sales to operations um, by doing that. Mike, what would you throw in there in terms of people that we really follow and learn from?
0: Well, the challenge with us is that we get into some pretty wonky technicals that I don't think would be generally applicable. I will say that there's another side to the, if you're going to do your own marketing or be concerned about your own marketing, there's the technical side of how do you set up an AdWords campaign or how do you do SEO on your website? When you're dealing with online marketing, you're always dealing with two audiences. You're dealing with the human being and then you're dealing with whatever technology system you're a part of. So in in the instance of Google, you're dealing with Googlebot and being able to satisfy what's essentially just a little miniature electronic robot. And you have to address both sides of things because if you don't have a good AdWords campaign that, that structurally works or you don't have a website that, that ranks organically, you're never going to get seen. The flip side of that is when the human being gets there, if they don't understand what you're talking about, if, you're, if the offer doesn't resonate with people, if the copy on your landing page doesn't connect with them, then it, you've wasted your time anyway. So I would say in the flip side of the conversation, beyond the technical aspects of it, there's some... Copywriters that I think are worthy of paying attention to, Gary Halbert would be one of them. Eugene Schwartz is another copywriter. These are all old school guys. Another person that I think is really good is Dan Kennedy. He's more contemporary. Um, these are all people that understand the fundamentals of direct response marketing, which for most property management companies, you should forget about building your brand and you should focus simply on direct response marketing. Those sources will all point you in the right direction in general. I mean, direct response marketing, if you're going to summarize it, is accountable advertising. You expect a result. You see how things go. You, you spend acts, you get Y return, and you evaluate it, and you tweak, and you improve as you go on. So all those people would be worthwhile in terms of copywriting, in terms of ad testing, all that sort of thing.
1: Oh, man, you're speaking my language, direct response. That's not a topic that gets brought up a lot. It is an old topic. It's an old theme because it came from the traditional mediums of mail, for example. Mail, direct mail being the primary medium of you sent out all this physical mail 20, 30 years ago. You're not trying to get people on an email list. You're just trying to get that check. You have to be able to say X number of dollars went out. And X number of orders came in and the implicit accountability in the medium developed a school of thought that was really focused on analyzing the consumer, the emotions – Uh, the mindset that the consumer goes through and figuring out how to actually persuade and influence it. Everybody that you mentioned, I would vouch for. I'm thinking about the No BS Guides by Dan Kennedy. I'm thinking about the Boron Letters. Um, There's a lot of great books that are out there within the direct marketing world. And I will go ahead and link to some of those in the show notes. My next question is this. For both of you guys, what's the number one mistake that you see property? management entrepreneurs making when it comes to sales and marketing? I'm sure we could all come up with a long list of things, but if you had to boil it down just to one thing, what would it be?
0: Um, To me, it's know your numbers. I'm still surprised every day. I've probably talked to 30 owners in the last two weeks. I'm always surprised by how fuzzy the numbers are, how they don't really have an idea of what their cost per door is. And in fact, I just wrote a NARPA article that's going to come out here in a couple months on this. Every owner needs to know what their cost per door is, and they need to know what their lifetime, the lifetime value of a customer is. Because I don't know how you set up a meaningful marketing campaign um, without knowing those two pieces of information. Sure, you want to know what the price per lead is and lots of your conversion rate and all that stuff. But ultimately, you can't deposit conversion rate in the bank. You can only deposit money, and money comes from signed management contracts. So that's, to me, a focus. And then you need to know, okay, how much can I afford to pay for that management contract? And people are always, well, as cheap as I can. Really? Not really. I don't agree with that because different channels are going to produce a door at a different price. So if you know that you're going to make $2,000 or let's say $3,000 in net profit over the lifetime value of a customer, how much should you be willing to pay for a new door? Somebody say, oh, only 500. Really? You wouldn't do it for 600? Not for 700? Not for 1,000? And, and so that's why it's so critical that you understand how much each customer is worth to you because then you can decide, well, this channel, which is not as profitable. It was like, oh, well, I want more referrals. Okay, great. Well, Let's try to scale that. Well, I want to grow. Well, you, you can't scale it with referrals probably. okay. So then where am I going to go from there? Well, every channel thing gets more expensive. People talk a lot about renter's warehouse. Oh my gosh, how can they afford to be on radio? Well, the answer is they know the lifetime value of a customer. They've figured it out. Maybe they do pay. I have no idea what they pay, but let's pretend they pay $1,500. Well, as long as they're making five, three, four, five grand for every customer they bring in, they can afford to pay 1500 bucks, and they have the entire radio market to themselves nationwide. And that's because they know their numbers. Now, I'm not saying those are the actual numbers. I'm just saying on a theoretical basis, that's how it would work. And every channel is going to be a little bit different price wise. And you need to be able to afford to do business in as many channels as possible. If you really want to scale and grow and dominate a market.
2: Dylan, your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, property management companies, they have processes built into the operations side of their business because they have to. But I think a lot of times we've touched on it today is that there's not a system. There's not a process for their marketing. they, they have an AdWords campaign that they hired someone else to do. And, you know, if somebody takes the phone, maybe it's the secretary, maybe it goes to voicemail. The salesperson, you know, kind of goes off the cuff. They have maybe something they send. There's no, um, like, continued automation. There's no way of taking people from higher in the funnel to low in the funnel. You know, they're not super complicated necessarily, some of them. But there needs to be a process around them, a process that you can measure. Um, going back to the numbers, obviously, the, the core dollars is important, but, you know, understanding where the sales process is broken is also super important of like, okay, actually using something like Elite Simple to figure out, okay, how fast are we calling people back? And actually listening to your salespeople's phone calls. I mean, that's something that we've said, hey, owner, um, you should listen to the sales call that your employee did, and they, they can't listen to the whole thing because it's too painful part of what you do is then you get in there and you figure it out and you develop a system and so that you can know that it's going to be happening the way you want it to um, and you're tracking that it's happening that way. Um, but then you're not just ignoring it. You're delegating it. Uh, there's, you know, the difference there is, one, you're just letting it kind of do its thing in whatever form it takes and not worrying about it. And the other is, I have figured this out and I'm moving on to something else now. And I have things in place to make sure that that's happening.
1: So here's how I would translate that. I would translate that as taking fundamental ownership, which would be reflected in a significant and meaningful operational focus in the areas of sales and marketing, rather than thinking about them being as a nice to have a part-time add-on versus placing tenants Doing evictions, collecting rent, updating owners. That's like rather than thinking that those things are the core primary service and sales and marketing are some additional bolt on, bringing the sales and marketing piece in house, putting it on equal footing. Having a dedicated business function in those areas and then allowing the process, the attention, the accountability to flow out of it. I agree with both the points that you guys brought up. The last question of the day is a one word answer. That's because <laughs> the last few times I've asked it, I've had people kind of hem and haw and be a little non committal. So I need a one word answer from you guys. On this one, for each of you, the question is this: Mike, Dylan, in your estimation, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Born. Dylan. Bred. <laughs> oh man, that is—I—I I pre, I predicted those answers ahead of time. We're not going to enumerate. <laughs> we're not going to illuminate. We're just gonna we're gonna move right on, <laughs> guys. This was great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the time. If folks want to hear more about what you guys are up to, what's the best place for them to go to?
0: They can go to geekrealestatemarketing.com dot and uh, they can find out all about us. They can find out about the book there.
1: All right, hey, I do recommend the book. It's called Make It Ring. You can find it on Amazon. Great resource. Hey guys, it's totally been a blast. We'll stay in tune and catch you on the flipping. Thanks, Thanks, Jordan. Man.